Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to our policy pulse on how gender ideology undermines Title IX. Please welcome our speakers, Sarah Parshall Perry, Legal Fellow at Heritage's Mead Center, and Emily Gao, Director of Heritage's Richard and Helen DeVos Center. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you very much, Catherine. I'm delighted to welcome the audience to our Policy Pulse this morning. So today we are going to talk about what happens when a cultural phenomena, uh, the rise of gender ideology, begins to enter our policy and law and how it affects the rights of others, in this case, particularly women and girls in the context of athletics. All people should be treated with respect because of their inher inherent human dignity. But as we see the rise of gender identity in our law and our culture, we see that there are negative effects on women and girls, particularly in the area of sports. In 1972, Congress passed Title IX of the Educational Amendments, prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sex. In the years since 1972, we have seen rapid advancement of women and girls in the area of athletics. In 1972, when Title IX passed, only one in 27 women and girls participated in sports. Today, that number is two in five. We've seen the rise um, of women and girls by 545% in college sports and 990% in high school sports. We've also seen women athletes um, from the United States have incredible dominance in the Olympics. We've also seen that 96% of female CEOs played a sport. But in 2018, a case arose in Connecticut where track and field runner Selena Soule watched in disbelief as two biological males who identify as females outran her and the other female athletes lined up on the track that day for the 55 meter dash. Those two athletes took first and second place in that event and they went on to take 15 high school track championship titles in the state of Connecticut that were previously held by nine different females. In 2009, the Heritage Foundation hosted an event with Selena's mother, Bianca Stanescu, and four other advocates for fairness in women's sports. Since then, women and girls have continued to see their opportunities created by Title IX eroding. Now, much of the controversy over gender identity policies in Title IX has to do with the increasing unfairness that we see when biological males are allowed to compete with females. A quick look at the facts shows that Allison Felix, the Olympic athlete who is the top sprinter in the world, has her personal best was outdone by 275 high school boys. What does the science tell us? The science tells us that the testosterone level for males the floor of the testosterone level for males is higher than the ceiling of the testosterone level for females. That's why males have 
stronger hearts, lungs, stronger muscles, and denser bones. And that leads to them being faster, stronger in competition. Hormone therapy does not undo these advantages. As we saw from a 2020 Swedish study, after one year of hormones, males who took cross-sex hormones continued to have an advantage over females. Biology matters. Sports are competitions that are won on the basis of bodies, not on the basis of feelings about gender identity. That's why we're here today to discuss the state of the law and legislation. And I'm delighted to welcome my colleague, Sarah Parshall Perry, who is a legal fellow at the Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and the Institute for Constitutional Government. Sarah has a particular expertise in this area because she served as senior counsel to the assistant secretary for, the, for civil rights at the Department of Education. And Sarah is going to give us an introduction to the current state of the law. Sarah? Thanks, Emily. Well, what was once a very common sense law that many of us have colloquially referred to as the women's sports law has been the subject of some controversy lately. So let's talk a little bit about the history of Title IX itself and why it was necessary, and then we'll go to where we find ourselves now. So under Title IX, schools are facing a new dilemma. Do they have to roster transgendered athletes on teams according to gender identity or allow sex-segregated private spaces like bathrooms to be opened up to biological members of the opposite sex? And what about religious institutions? Do they have to conform to permissive interpretations of Title IX? So the answer, unfortunately, is it depends. The resolution of these kinds of issues has real and obvious consequences for colleges, universities, and schools. It could affect an institution's core values and donations. In athletics, it could affect the ability to recruit athletes and to retain them. An institution policies might conflict with those of the NCAA. It could cause it to risk eligibility or media rights, and it could put itself at the center of a debate a disagreement between state and federal government. So a bit about the legislative history, which is important in the context of Title IX. In 1971, a Connecticut judge proclaimed, athletic competition builds character in our boys and we do not need that kind of character in our girls, end quote. It was comments like those that helped fuel the groundswell of support at the end of the sexual revolution for equality of women's educational opportunities and it took a House and Senate conference committee several months to work through more than 250 differences between the House and Senate versions of education bills. And in 1972, the final legislation, the provision against sex discrimination was passed and became Title IX. Some people have argued that because Title IX's language is clear on prohibitions against discrimination of either sex, it is not a law designed to singularly protect females, which of course is accurate, but it needs to be stressed that the impetus for the bill itself was the educational disadvantage suffered uniquely by women and girls that provided the impetus for the legislation. In fact, back in 1997 on the 25th anniversary of Title IX, Senator Birch Bay, the author of Title IX, delivered remarks to a joint session of Congress and he said as follows, the House Education and Labor Committee 
had a large body of evidence of discrimination against girls and women in our education system. Since I came to Congress in 1965, the committee has been involved in hearings related to educational equality for girls and women. We scrutinized textbooks which only portrayed successful men and admissions policies which excluded women from graduate and professional schools. Consideration of amendments to the Higher Education Act in 1971 provided us with an opportunity to pursue language on sex discrimination in schools. Yes, we still have much to accomplish and we must aggressively continue to pursue equality. Give women fair playing time and opportunity and the trends indicate that they will show the same levels of desire and ability in athletics as men." End quote. So the Supreme Court has actually even stressed that it was Congress's intention in 1972 that is significant and guiding here in interpreting Title IX. In a case called North Haven Board of Education versus Bell in 1982, it made that distinction and that stressor very clear. So it cannot logically be argued that congressional intent in 1972 was to include those who identify as women and girls alongside biological women and girls, when for so long those biological women and girls had suffered such unequal educational treatment. Title IX actually left, it left a gap, filled the gap from Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, and national origin with programs that receive federal funding, but says nothing about sex discrimination. And then later in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which protects against sex discrimination in employment, but doesn't mention anything about educational settings. So between the two gaps left in these anti-sex discrimination statutes, Title IX stepped in and filled that space. It necessitated a statutory remedy to address the vast disparities that women and girls were suffering. In fact, as Emily alluded to, the rate of girls' participation just in 2016 was more than 10 times what it was prior to the passage of Title IX. It's an increase of over 1,000%. It successfully expanded women's educational horizons and in turn has set them up for career success in later life. So we've seen some unintended consequences and a number of cases and legislation stemming from the last year's decision of the Supreme Court in a case known as Bostock versus Clayton County. That's a bit of background on Title IX. All of it can be traced to this decision. It was a case in which the court within the context of Title VII expanded the definition of sex discrimination in employment contexts to include sexual orientation and gender identity. However, two very important points to note about Bostock. First, though it's been cited endlessly for the proposition that the decision demands all civil rights laws be expanded to reflect sexual orientation and transgender status as stand-ins for sex, Justice Neil Gorsuch began his opinion as follows. We proceed on the assumption that sex signified what the employers suggest referring only to biological distinctions between male and female. In writing for the majority, he also stated that the ruling in Title VII's expansion of sex discrimination should not be expanded to include such rulings on other federal civil rights laws. 
in fact, making clear that this ought not to be construed as such an attempt to whole cloth modify anti-sex discrimination provisions. He stated, the employers worry that our decision will sweep beyond Title VII itself to other federal or state laws that prohibit sex discrimination. And under Title VII itself, they say sex segregated bathrooms, locker rooms, and dress codes will prove unsustainable after our decision today. But none of these other laws are before us. We have not had the benefit of adversarial testing about the meaning of their terms, and we do not prejudge any such question today. Under Title VII, too, we do not purport to address bathrooms, locker rooms, or anything else of the kind. The only question before us is whether an employer who fires someone simply for being homosexual or transgender has discharged or otherwise discriminated against that individual because of such individual sex, end quote. Now, a second note about Bostock. Title IX and Title VII are very different statutes with different focuses, histories, and language. While both of them are prohibitive of sex discrimination, they differ as to considerations of sex itself. Title IX requires sex equality for women specifically because of their biological distinctions. Title VII, on the other hand, the employment law at issue in Bostock, is sex prohibitive, meaning employers cannot consider biological sex in the workplace. By contrast, Title IX of the Education Amendments would be considered sex permissive. In other words, a context in which considerations of sex are not only okay, but in some cases even demanded. It also contains a number of exemptions authorizing or allowing sex separate activities and intimate facilities to be provided separately on the basis of biological sex, which Title VII does not. The Education Department's longstanding construction of the term sex in Title IX to mean biological sex, male or female, is the only construction consistent with the ordinary public meaning of sex at the time of Title IX's enactment. In 1972. Now, previous Department of Education guidance issued by the Office for Civil Rights under the Trump administration in January of this year had reversed the Obama Department of Education's directive on opening all bathrooms to students in line with gender identity. That guidance indicated that while Bostock could be salient in relation to sexual orientation, again, because of Bostock, the point of emphasis being biological sex it should not guide interpretations related to transgender status and gender identity. Transgender students identifying with a gender other than their biological sex. Now, this is because the opposition of biological sex to gender identity would gut Title IX's very purpose, which is to ensure that girls and women have equal opportunities in education, including sports, bathrooms and private areas in multiple places, the statute actually relies on a sex binary, both or either, as well as male or female. That's its own implementing language. Last year, the Department of Education also issued a final rule on Title IX. And at that time, after very extensive review of the record and history of Title IX, which I also participated in a painful and lengthy process. It wrote, in promulgating regulations to implement Title IX, 
the department expressly acknowledged physiological differences between males and females. For example, the department's justification for not allowing schools to use a single standard of measuring skill or progress in physic physical education classes has an adverse effect on members of one sex. It was that if progress is measured by determining whether an individual can perform 25 push-ups, the standard could be virtually out of reach for many more women than men because of the difference in strength between average persons of each sex, end quote. Let's talk about what the current administration is doing on Title IX. As you are probably well aware, President Biden's January 20th executive order on sexual orientation and gender identity in federal law used as its basis the Bostock decision. The order directed every federal agency to bring itself into compliance with Bostock by reviewing its previous guidance and interpretations on sex discrimination to make sure that they were inclusive, sexual orientation and gender identity as well. The Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Housing and Urban Development were quick off the draw. They moved within a few short weeks, but it was not until June of this year that the Department of Education published its own interpretive guidance on Title IX's prohibitions on sex discrimination to include sexual orientation and gender identity. It concluded this year that, quote, such interpretation is most consistent with the purpose of Title IX, which is to ensure equal opportunity and to protect individuals from the harms of sex discrimination, end quote. But another very important point to note, the executive order and the Department of Education's new guidance are silent as to any potential enforcement actions the administration and its agencies could take against non-compliant institutions, which means schools, colleges, and universities should be on the lookout for further guidance from the Department of Education on compliance with this new and broadly expanded Title IX interpretation. The guidance indicates only that where OCR at the Department of Education can appropriately exercise jurisdiction, where it can get involved, it will open an investigation into complaints of sex discrimination. The guidance also makes clear in a very small footnote that the religious liberty exemption to Title IX still stands. More on the religious liberty exemption in just a minute. But both the president's January executive order and the Department of Education's recent guidance remain silent again on potential enforcement. So schools should be on the lookout for further guidance and interpretive regulations on what it would look like for schools and institutions that violate this broadly expansive interpretation of Title IX. Not surprisingly, this has elicited quite a bit of litigation in the federal circuits, but it's fallen into one of three categories. Litigation on bathrooms, litigation on sports, and litigation on Title IX's religious exemption. Let's start with bathrooms first. In the very popular and often referenced case now as sort of the seminal bathroom case, Grimm versus Gloucester County, the Supreme Court just denied a petition for review. In fact, it cements a substantive win for the transgender student in the Fourth Circuit, which held that in 2020, Title IX and equal protection clauses required the student to allow the school to allow 
Grimm, who was a biological girl, to use the boys' bathroom. Even the school's provision of a separate, sex-neutral, and private bathroom for Grimm was considered insufficient to protect that student's legal interests. Another case, recently the 11th Circuit denied uh, the Supreme Court application of Grimm versus Gloucester County in a Supreme in a new case called Adams versus School Board of St. Johns County, Florida. This was after a petition for an end bank rehearing, meaning all of the judges participate. A trans male, a biological female, again sought to use the boys' bathroom, and the school denied the request. Well, the trans student again filed suit, but the court skated the issue entirely, not addressing Title IX, but rather ruling just on an equal protection clause, saying that the school's separation of bathrooms, according to biological sex, was arbitrary under a case called Reed versus Reed. So that's another case that we'll be watching to see whether or not it makes its way up to the Supreme Court. Sports, let's talk about that for a second. In the Second Circuit, the U.S. Court of Appeals, there are four female athletes who continue to battle on for their right to compete only with biological girls. In Sewell versus Connecticut, they have requested these female, biological female, athlete plaintiffs are requesting judicial clarification on whether or not they have to compete against biological boys who identify as girls. They claimed the athletic conferences policies allowed those transgender athletes to unfairly dominate track and field events, as Emily talked about a little earlier. And the court has obviously decided and has indicated its hand about its judicial activist interpretations previously telling counsel for the four plaintiffs that they should refer to the transgendered athletes, not as biological males, but as transgender females. Not surprisingly, the Second Circuit did go on to dismiss their court case, or the trial court went on to dismiss their court case. It's now pending in the Second Circuit. Emily will talk about this case in a little bit, but in a case called Hecox versus Little, two transgender women sued the state of Idaho over its Fairness in Women's Sports Act, which is an act that prohibits transgender women from competing on women's sports teams at public schools. This is one of a number of bills like its kind crossing the country, and Emily will talk about that in a second, but the Ninth Circuit is now considering the constitutionality of a state law following Idaho's appeal of the district court's injunction. Finally, the religious exemption, sort of the three categories in which Title IX litigation tends to fall. Title IX's religious exemption permits institutions controlled by a religious organization to avoid compliance if that compliance would be inconsistent with their sincerely held religious beliefs. Obviously, the court was interested in balancing federally funded education institutions and yet preserving religious freedom and separation of church and state. There has been no prior court decision ruling on the constitutionality of Title IX's religious exemption as it exists. But two cases now, College of the Ozarks versus Biden and Hunter versus U.S. Department of Education, have taken the religious exemption to issue, one seeking to enforce it and another one seeking to rule it completely unconstitutional. So now the Department of Education has to sniff out every perceived violation of Title IX and pursue it one by one. 
So we anticipate ultimately this is going to set up a Supreme Court showdown on Title IX, a law designed to protect biological women and rectify the inequality that Congress recognized in 1972. So I'm going to throw it back to Emily for a look at some of the legislation surrounding gender identity, sports, and Title IX for a look at that. Thanks, Sarah. So one indication of how controversial these policies are, um, are the bills that we have seen introduced in the states. As you mentioned, um, there have been eight bills that have passed in the states to protect fairness in women's sports. One of those is the Idaho bill. That bill, as you mentioned, is being challenged by the ACLU. And I just want to briefly reference uh, one of the statements by a female athlete who is involved in that case. Her name is Madison Kenyon. She is a um, track and field runner at Idaho State University. She saw a male who identifies as a female um, begin to compete against her and her teammates in competitions. And he took um, the top places in several competitions. She described it as frustrating and demotivating for herself and for other female athletes. The ACLU has now sued the state of Idaho seeking to overturn this law. And I, the ACLU also called upon the NCAA to pull their events from the state of Idaho. In addition, the NCAA um, threatened to pull its events from the state of Florida when Florida was considering passage of a similar bill. Ultimately, Florida did pass the bill and Governor DeSantis signed it and the AC, NCAA did not, um, did not carry out its threat to pull events from the state of Florida. In addition to the eight state bills that have already passed, and there have been bills introduced in 33 states to protect women and girls sports, there is also battle in Congress over the issue of women's sports. The Equality Act would add gender identity as a protected class to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Now, as you mentioned, um, Title IX is not directly affected by the Equality Act. However, the Equality Act does encompass Title VI and the addition of gender identity to Title VI and all of the um, other parts of the Civil Rights Act could further um, this idea of gender identity that would displace biological sex and ultimately have the impact of nullifying Title IX's effectiveness in all the schools that receive federal funds. So two bills have been introduced in the House and the Senate that would protect women's and girls' sports. These bills introduced by Representative Greg Stubbe in the House and Mike Lee in the Senate have been garnering support. In addition, we see the grassroots pushing back on the um, loss of opportunity and loss of fairness for women and girl athletes. The Promise to America's Children, which the Heritage Foundation launched along with the Family Policy Alliance and Alliance Defending Freedom in February, protects children from the harms of gender ideology. One of those harms is the harms to women and girls when they lose opportunities to compete on a level playing field in sports. And the Promise to America's Children has garnered signatures of thousands of parents 
over 60 public policy organizations, members of Congress, and state legislators. Our polling also shows that over 65% of Americans believe that women and girls should have the opportunity to participate in sports by competing against other women and girls. Now, there has been a lot of controversy over these bills. Many people ask, what about the opportunities for athletes who identify as transgender? And it's important to understand that a school can have male and female teams and co-ed teams and students who identify um, as a gender identity different than their biological sex have opportunities to participate in sports, whether it's co-ed sports or sports according to their biological sex. As we continue to see this type of legislation um, proliferate in the states, both the bills that um, protect women and girls sports and bills like the Equality Act that would add gender identity to the 64 Civil Rights Act, we are going to see more and more um, debates in our society over the concept of gender identity. Women and girls are pushing back along with lawmakers to defend the equal opportunities in athletics because as a society, we have said that women and girls should have equal opportunity in education in all parts of civil society. Why would we exempt sports from the equal protection that we provide to women and girls in all areas of our society? So as we continue to debate these issues as a country, the Heritage Foundation will continue to provide legal analysis and analysis of our culture um, Sarah has written extensively on these topics, and I urge you to check out her Twitter feed where she posts frequently on these topics of Title IX and gender identity. This is a key issue in the gender identity debates, and we're grateful that you've joined us today, Sarah, and grateful to you, our audience, for joining us. If you'd like to find out about more Heritage events, please visit our website, www.heritage.org. And feel free to reach out to Sarah or myself if you have questions about today's event and what we've discussed. We invite you to complete the survey that you'll receive shortly after the Policy Pulse. And we thank you for bringing us your ideas so that we can bring the best ideas into the public square. Thank you very much and have a great day.